0: Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Monday, January the 2nd on IRIS. I'm your reader, Ken Lauder. First let's take a look at the weather for eastern Iowa. Today we're expecting rain, winds will be from the northeast at 10 to 20 miles per hour, and Cedar Rapids will see a high of 44, 45 in Iowa City, and then falling to a low tonight of 40 degrees in both uh, cities. Sunset tonight is at 4 47 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow morning at 7 37 a.m. For a total daylight period of nine hours and 12 minutes. From today's front page an article by Bennett Goldstein entitled Queering the Family Farm. Despite the obstacles LGBTQ farmers find fertile ground in the Midwest. Shannon and Eve Mingalone avow that their farmers market booth is very gay. They hang strings of pride flags and sell rainbow stickers to help pay for gender affirming care, like hormone replacement therapy for Eve. Sometimes when parents and their teenagers pass the booth, the adults glance, glance, then speed ahead. The kids pause for a second look. Shannon, age 34, hopes it means something for them to see LGBTQ professionals out and succeeding. People often share stories. The middle-aged woman who confided that her daughter is transgender. The teen who stood in the middle of the Mingolone's booth and said, this makes me feel safe. That means everything to me, Shannon said. Eve Mingolone is seen on October 19 with their son Klein Mingalone III in the Hoop House at their business Ramshackle Farm in Harvard, Illinois. Now in their second season she and Eve 35 grow more than 45 varieties of vegetables at their business Ramshackle Farm in Harvard. Lettuces and Asian greens emerge on stacks of hydroponic troughs and spinach in a warm hoop house. Outside, Shannon and Eve tend to arugula, broccoli, peas, and radishes using intensive planting and heavy rotation techniques, never pesticides or synthetic fertilizer. Their operation is an exception to the sprawling corn and bean fields that dominate the landscape. Shannon and Eve work to feed people, not livestock or cars. Shannon wears her politics on her coveralls. Her favorite jean jacket includes patches that declare end monoculture and save the earth, bankrupt a corporation. The Mingolones are among a multitude of LGBTQ farmers who draw connections between their identities and agriculture, including their adoption of sustainable practices. We're not just raising food, Shannon said, We're creating safe spaces for people. Like many, they used to have a specific image of a typical farmer, white, male, heterosexual, Christian, and conservative. Excluded from that vision, or perhaps myth, is a space for them. So they are creating one. The presence of LGBTQ people in agriculture challenges stereotypes of who can or should be interested in farming. But the community is not a monolith, interviews with 16 Midwestern LGBTQ producers indicate. Some use restorative techniques in hopes of reducing environmental destruction and social inequity. Others run conventional operations, which industry representatives and policymakers say are key to feeding the world's growing population. Nonetheless, as LGBTQ farmers navigate common hurdles ranging from land inaccessibility to federal lending restrictions to social isolation. They rely on creativity and resilience to survive, much like they do in other arenas of their lives. No definitive figures measure how many LGBTQ people farm in America. The U.S. Department of Agriculture asks respondents to identify their sex in its five-year censuses, not their sexual orientation or gender identity. But the department is considering adding those questions to the 2027 Census of Agriculture. It conducted a pilot study in late 2021 to gauge whether their inclusion would affect response rates, Responses decreased significantly when the questions were inserted, despite the survey's confidentiality. The study lacked possible explanations for the findings, but when the but when word of the survey reached U.S. Senator Josh Hawley, represent Republican of Missouri, he accused the USDA and President Joe Biden of advancing a woke agenda. Hawley claimed in a tweet that a farmer sent him a copy of the document. The lawmaker questioned facetiously the relevance of such important questions to the farming profession. The National Young Farmers Coalition likewise encountered pushback from outside of the LGBTQ community to a survey that included similar demographic questions. But a failure to acquire demographic information about LGBTQ people prevents improvements to services, said Katie Densman, a rural sociology and public policy assistant professor at Iowa State University. If you're completely unaware that these people are out there, then their issues are, be- are completely being ignored, she said, in a way that is perpetuating violence in the system. Densman jimmied a statistical workaround using the USDA's 2017 census, finding that 8,302 farms were overseed by men married to men and 3,550 by women married to women. That was about 1.2% of all dually-run farms nationwide. Densman found that many same-sex couples farmed conventionally, but same-sex married men were more likely to have organic land and grow products intended for human consumption than farms run by men married to women. Likewise, women married to women more often engaged in alternative farming practices like intensive grazing and the production of value-added products. Might LGBTQ people's unique vantage draw them to sustainable farming. It's possible, Densman said, but as other sociologists have proposed, the economic and social advantages queer people face also might funnel them into alternative agriculture. That is, they lack the expansive resources and capital necessary to farm conventionally. Statistically, LGBTQ people experience higher rates of poverty, and food insecurity compared to non-LGBTQ people. They also earn less dollar for dollar and disproportionately experience homelessness. Then add the upfront costs of farming. Land access remains a top obstacle to entering agriculture and attempting to do so without the backing of family can be a Herculean task. 59% of respondents to the 2022 National Young Farmer Survey said finding affordable farmland to purchase is very or extremely challenging, while 45 percent said the same of finding any farmland at all. Meanwhile, the cost of cropland is rising nationwide. Corbin Shoals, age 27, operates Rainbow Roots, an organic farm rooted in queerness, on eight acres of rented land north of Iowa City, Iowa. She does not come from a farm family and works two other jobs to support herself. Scholes' lease expires after the 2024 growing season, and she doesn't know whether she'll be, she will be able to renew. I'm not sure I'll be able to ever afford a farm, Shoals said, and moving everything I've built to another one- to five-year lease really limits my growth opportunity. No rainbow flags hang on the red barn at Hofler Dairy, but it's apparent the men who live there are hitched when one casually grabs the other's butt as he strides past him in the milking parlor. Under the drone of equipment, Andy Ferguson walks walked down a row of cows to check that the milkers were running smoothly. His husband, John Hofler, a third-generation dairy farmer, crouched to retrieve a bucket of rags. Outside, dusty brown fields, freshly combined during the autumn harvest, stretched across the gentle hills surrounding New Vienna, Iowa. Hofler feels fortunate to own a farm. He milks 230 cows, occasionally with help from Ferguson, who is a school administrator in nearby Dubuque. Both 51-year-olds previously were married to women and fathered children. Marrying, having kids, it was the normal thing to do, said Hofler, who spent nine years with his wife. I thought I could just do it. But he couldn't. Hofler's divorce upset his father, a good German Catholic. That his son was gay added to his distress. He tried to take Hofler to the hospital after the secret came out. Because you're sick... His father told Hofler, You're sick. Hofler feared his dad would kick him off the farm and sever ties permanently. Hofler would miss the opportunity to purchase the family business. His mother intervened. If you kick him out, I'm going too, she told her husband and later relayed to Hofler. Father and son didn't speak for three years, but they continued to milk side by side in silence. Hofler doubts He would be farming today had he lost his family link to the dairy. Intimate relationships and economic capital are bound together, said Isaac Leslie, an assistant professor at University of Vermont Extension. Often, farmers turn to partners and family for on-farm labor, extra income, and health insurance. We see that in the process of accessing each of these key resources, Queer farmers face barriers that cisgender and heterosexual farmers don't, said Leslie, who has studied farm viability and the experiences of LGBTQ producers. Matters of the heart are tougher for LGBTQ farmers to begin with. Locating a partner in rural America, where an estimated 2.9 million to 3.8 million LGBTQ people live poses a challenge when there are fewer queer people and gathering spaces. Rural areas especially, where agriculture is an economic mainstay, trend religiously and politically conservative. Moreover, two traditional avenues to land acquisition, marriage and inheritance, can be tenuous routes for LGBTQ people. Wedding into ownership was not necessarily an option across the country until 2015, when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that all states must issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples and recognize same-sex unions performed in other states. Inheriting a farm might be off the table for LGBTQ people whose familial relationships have frayed. The family makeup of a farm is a crucial factor for those seeking government support. Many USDA loans, such as those allocated for beginning farmers and ranchers, require that the applicant operate a family farm. That means the majority of the business is owned by an operator and any individuals related to them by blood, marriage, or adoption, a definition that applies to about 98% of all U.S. farms. Such restrictions can curtail the options of farmers who have faced or continue to experience biological and legal hurdles toward creating families. LGBTQ people who are unmarried or lack children might turn to non-family business partnerships for assistance. That would make them ineligible for the types of USDA loans that help the majority of farmers. There's a value of the traditional family that overlooks other ways to be a community, to be in a relationship that operates outside of blood and marriage ties," said Michaela Hoffelmeyer, a doctoral candidate in sociology at Penn State University who has studied LGBTQ farmers and sustainable agriculture. The queer community has been doing this for a long time. Additionally, the USDA does not offer targeted grants to LGBTQ farmers, a department spokesman said, and they're not uh, considered a historically underserved population. That precludes their participation in loan, credit, and insurance programs that are reserved for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers, unless they qualify under other program criteria. The USDA is working to ascertain the needs of LGBTQ farmers, the spokesperson said. The department held the first ever LGBTQ Farmer Roundtable in June to learn how producers access department programs. The USDA also plans within the next year to hold listening sessions to better understand issues and barriers facing LGBTQ farmers. Sometimes, in the absence of traditional families, LGBTQ people have constructed chosen ones that encompass a gamut of possible relationships. In farming, too, LGBTQ producers have conceived new kinds of partnerships. Queer people have different perspectives on life, said Rufus Jupiter, 42, a flower farmer living in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Just the verb to queer is taking whatever is the status quo and seeing what different possibilities exist. Some farmers drew links between their identities and their desire to steer agriculture toward more environmentally sustainable practices. A lot of traditional notions of land ownership are husband, wife, and their children farm the land said Bailey Lutz, a 27-year-old entrepreneur in Decorah. And when the husband and wife die, the oldest son gets the land. Lutz tends a growing herd of goats and contracts with landowners to have the animals consume brush and invasive species on those properties. Lutz also sells some of their goats for meat. Lutz said the traditional view of land ownership and inheritance reinforces the idea that land exists solely for human extraction, disregarding how other plants and animals live on the landscape. I very much see land as being as much in a relationship with me as I am with it, or with other people, or with my goats, they said. Had I been much more fearful of engaging with my queerness, I wouldn't have explored those concepts. Lutz, who grew up in the Minneapolis suburb of Brooklyn Park, had few reservations about moving to a significantly smaller community in northeast Iowa. They missed dance venues, though, and opportunities to hold hands with a significant other in public. Chef Fresh Roberson grew up poor, but believed they lived in a state of plentitude. The feeling stemmed from the food growing around them. Roberson, who uses she and they pronouns interchangeably, was raised in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. It was a small southern town, she said, where the railroad tracks separated black from white residents. Roberson and their mother visited nearby sweet potato fields to gather the still-edible tuberous roots that heavy machinery failed to collect on the first pass. Roberson filled milk crates and kept them to overwinter in the bottom of closets throughout her home. Roberson moved to Chicago in 2001 to study biomedical engineering at Northwestern University One day, they decided to bake a pecan pie, but discovered they could not afford a small bag of the shelled nuts. Back in Rocky Mount, Roberson had been able to locate the food she needed whether from an aunt's pecan tree or a cousin's grapevine. I don't think I really thought about it in that perspective until something that was always abundant for me I couldn't afford, Roberson said. Roberson left Northwestern and went on to work on an organic heirloom farm, attend culinary school, start a catering company, travel to California, work in the Silicon Valley kitchens of Google and Facebook, Return to Chicago and manage a mobile produce market. For Roberson, age 40, gardening makes the world disappear in a mo- for a moment. Now they run fresher together. The business, located in Chicago's South Shore neighborhood, exists to improve community access to fresh food. It's framed by four pillars: build, grow, cook, and heal. Each supports a vision of creating an equitable food system that prioritizes community sovereignty. A team of staff, fellows, and volunteers farms on a quarter acre at an incubator on city property and oversees a nearby community hub and aggregation space where they store, wash, and pack food. A lot of how we are building is through this lens of choosing our family, choosing our loved ones who we are taking care of, Roberson said. Fresh Together, partners with people and organizations with similar aims. Each week of the growing season, the team creates harvest bags filled with produce, herbs, and value-added products from the urban farm and other businesses owned by people of color. The business has grown and is relocating to a permanent home in Beaverville, Illinois, near historically black farming town. Roberson will continue to sustain fresher together using diversified funding streams. Other LGBTQ farmers have looked to unconventional financing models to launch their operations. Hannah Breckbill, a vegetable, pork, and lamb farmer in Decorah, Iowa, said her local USDA farm service agency, Classifies her 22-acre organic operation as a home garden, which disqualifies her from utilizing some financial programs. She did not attempt to secure an FSA loan when she started farming because she lacked confidence the agency would take her effort, efforts seriously. So Breckbill, age 35, purchased the land using donations and personal savings in 2018. She organized her business as a worker-owned cooperative and created the commons, a capital account that was funded by donations and constitutes 40% of the farm's ownership. Nobody owns the commons. It's a shared resource. When a worker buys into the farm, they pay into their own capital account. That investment is offset by the commons, which also reduces the amount the farm must pay out when an owner retires. Turning to today's opinion page, we have a guest column by Catherine Rampell, who is a syndicated columnist. Her piece is entitled, The Music Man, My Emotional Support Animal. Some people have emotional support puppies. Some turn to chicken soup, a fancy meditation app, or homeopathic tinctures. This year, my therapy has been the Broadway revival of The Music Man, examined in the right light this show might salve if not entirely solve some of our country's anxieties too for those unfamiliar the music musical centers on a charismatic con man who fleeces a bunch of rubes harold hill played by hugh jackman somehow spryer and slicker than you've ever seen him travels from town to town whipping up moral panics and cashing in on them when he reaches river city iowa Harold snookers the town into fearing the corrupting influence of a newly installed pool table. You got trouble, folks, right here in River City. Trouble with a capital T, and that rhymes with P, and that stands for pool. The cure for this menace, the charming scammer declares, is a wholesome boy's marching band, which he conveniently poised poised to, to create, since he's a music professor who sells instruments and band uniforms. None of this makes much sense, but whatever Harold but whatever. Harold is irresistible, and the townspeople gladly buy the fantasy he's selling. They hand over their savings and await the deliveries from the Wells Fargo wagon. Harold plans to hop the last train out of town before anyone realizes he's musically ill illiterate. The scam is foiled, however, when the flim-flammer falls for a local gal. This time he decides to stick around, because a real man, ahem, faces the music. I've seen this latest production five times so far this year, usually by myself, often in moments of stress or uncertainty. I bought a last-minute ticket on election day, for example, to tear myself away from my computer screen and the urge to perpetually refresh the fear needle. Truly, there's nothing like a tap-dancing wolverine to calm one's political anxieties. That said, Broadway tickets are not exactly the cheapest analgesic and definitely not covered by my health insurance. Why, then, am I aching for a sixth viewing before the production closes next month? Some charms of the music man are obvious. Witness writer Meredith Wilson's devious wordplay and the verbal contortions he crams into his high-speed patter songs. He's just a bag beat, bell ringin', big haul, great go, neck or nothin', rip-roarin', ever times a bulls, I salesman. That's Professor Harold Hill. Harold Hill. There's a joyful swagger of 76 trombones. In this production, the anthem is masterfully choreographed by Warren Carlyle who alchemizes his dancer's limbs into layers and layers of imagined brass instruments. And there's so much delightful mischief in Marion the Librarian, in which Harold enlists the town's children into his flirtation with the town's standoffish librarian, Marion Peru, a winning, if somewhat miscast, Sutton Foster. Marion's quiet library explo- erupts into chaos with books flying legs pinwheeling, and lots of futile shushing. Even Shapoopy, the, perhaps the most fatuous song in Broadway history, earns its place in this production. That's because it gives Foster, a fabulous dancer, trapped in a mostly stationary role, a chance finally to stretch her legs at the start of Act Two. The show also, also features some quietly subversive sexual politics, perhaps unexpected, given its G-rated reputation. Harold, for instance, sings a rat tat rebuke of men's typical fetishization of feminine purity. Our salesman prefers a sadder but wiser girl, as cynical Marian is presumed to be. Cheer, I cheer, I rave for the virtue I am too late to save. I hope, I pray, for Hester to win just one more A. But I think the real reason I've so often sought comfort in The Music Man, is that this show, like Harold Hill himself, is selling a fantasy. Specifically, a fantasy about how Americans can actually get along. The Music Man is about the healing nature of the arts. Harold teaches discordant neighbors to live in harmony, quite literally by transforming the town's bickering school board into a barbershop quartet. Even bad art, our River City residents learn can be restorative. The interpretive dances led by the mayor's wife are wondrously awful. At, at the show's end, when the boys' band bleats out an out of sync minuet in G, parents nevertheless gush over their children's sour um-pa-pas, And all's forgiven. It's this forgiveness, lubricated by love and music that makes the music man so seductive. A community has been hoodwinked by an admitted fraud. Townspeople could have emerged humiliated, suspicious, divided. Instead, how, instead, somehow, they emerged from their collective trauma stronger and more tightly knit than before. Harold's manipulations have opened them up rather than closed them off. They were lied to, yes, But ultimately, they realized they wanted to be lied to. Even better, the con man isn't so much a psychopathic shyster shyster, as a misguided cheerleader with an overactive imagination. No wonder everyone can just move on. If only we could all live in River City. And we have a couple of letters to the editor today. The first comes from Jerry, Jeremy Brigham of Cedar Rapids and it's entitled Thomas Uses Scare Tactics on Immigration. Cal Thima, Thomas's op-ed on December 22 compared the migration of people through Mexico to the use of cream in coffee, saying that as you add cream, the results become more cream than coffee. Then he shifts to his concern with migrants coming into El Paso, immediately linking migrants with fentanyl. This is a scare tactic. While illicit fentanyl is a serious problem, the main source is China, not Mexico. While some migrants may be carrying fentanyl, it is absurd to suppose that all migrants are. I found one case of a man carrying 71 pounds of fentanyl in his car entering through Arizona, not crossing the Rio Grande on foot. Through 2022, according to WOLA, advocacy for human rights in the Americas while the greatest number are Mexicans the migrants are see- fleeing violence and insecurity from many countries including including Cuba a few South American countries and most Central American countries but also Russia India Turkey China and Romania the best thing the US can do is to receive them with hospitality kindness and the practical help To get settled in the country. Thomas mentions the CDC reports that 107,000 people have died from drug overdoses in the U.S. over 12 months, two thirds from fentanyl. To link migrants and fentanyl without evidence is a scare tactic and bad journalism. This by Jeremy Brigham of Cedar Rapids. And uh, our second letter is from Kevin Link of Solon. And it's entitled "Thomas is the Mayor of Trumpville." Cal Thomas's column decrying the January sixth committee is full of more holes than Steve Bannon's five Miles of Private Border wall. No one stepped forward to defend Trump during the eighteen months. Was there what was there to defend? No one cross-examined witnesses. They spilled their guts when questioned under oath. Only two lockmakers from the minority. That's the total number of Republicans with the intestinal fortitude to defend our democratic process. Cal then goes on to claim Trump did many good things, like lowering inflation. It rose 7.7% in his four years. He built 455 miles of border wall, actually 49 miles of wall, where there was no barrier. Cheap gas, 2016 price was $1.99. 2018 was $2.56, and 2020 was $2.39. His foreign policy of snuggling up foreign dictators, his agriculture policy of upending foreign markets, and giving those sales to South American farmers. He deregulated corporate America to the detriment of our ecological systems and personal health. He managed all this, in a smooth sailing and thankfully short four years in office with no global situations to test his his administration. The reason that the committee seemed so one-sided was because there weren't enough patriots on the minority side to put their oaths on the line and protect the Constitution. Liz Cheney and and Adam Kinzinger should be showered with America's thanks for their efforts, and it's time to put that dinosaur, Cal Thomas, out to pasture. And you're le- listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Monday, January the 2nd on IRIS, the IRA radio reading information service for the blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. First from Hiawatha, Merwin, also known as Archie, Faye Zerba Sr., age 89, passed away on Friday, December 30, at the Hiawatha Care Center Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, January 4, at the Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. A funeral service will be held at 1 p.m. Thursday, January 5, at the Funeral Home followed by burial at Dunkard Cemetery in Midway with full military honors. From Cedar Rapids, Mary Jean Fisher, age 96, passed away on December 30. Services will be held at a later date. From Strawberry Point, Jerry Everett, age 81, passed away on Saturday, December 31, at his home. Funeral service is at 10.30 a.m. Friday, uh, January 6, at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Volga. Visitation is from 3 to 7 p.m. Thursday, January 5, at the Leonard Muller Funeral Home in Strawberry Point. Friends may call from 9 to 10 a.m. before the service at the church on Friday. Interment will be in Hillcrest Cemetery in Volga. From Cedar Rapids, Linda Linnell King Fritz, age 74, passed away Wednesday, December 28, in the comfort of her home, surrounded by her loved ones. A visitation is from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, January 6, at the murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. A memorial service is at 11 a.m. Saturday, January 7, at the Funeral Home with burial to follow at Spring Grove Cemetery in Covington, Iowa. A celebration of life will be held at the Fraternal Order of Eagles number 2272, at 1735 11th Street Northwest, in Cedar Rapids, following burial on Saturday, January 7. And from Cedar Rapids, Carol Hayden Vest, age 89, died Sunday, December 11. A private family interment will be held at the Linwood Cemetery Mausoleum in Cedar Rapids. A service will be held on Saturday, January 7, at the Asbury United Methodist Church. Visitation is at 11 a.m. with service to begin at noon and lunch to follow. The murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids is assisting the family. From West Branch, Kenneth, also known as Ken Edward Mobley, uh, age 72, passed away on Friday, December 30, at his home. A memorial service will be held on Tuesday, January 3, at the Coralville United Methodist Church. A visitation will be held one hour prior to the church, prior at the church, and memorials may be made to the University of Iowa Foundation. From Cedar Rapids, Thomas H., also known as Tom Weigand, age 80, formerly of Independence, died on Friday, December 30, at the Unity Point Health St. Luke's Helen G. Nassif Transitional Care Center in Cedar Rapids from an illness following surgery for uh, an aortic dissection. Uh, funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, January 4, at St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Marion, with visitation one hour prior to the service. A luncheon will follow at the church. A private family interment will take place at the Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. From Center Point, Donald Alvern Carver age 90, passed away after a long illness on Friday, December 30. Services will be held at 11 a.m. Thursday, January 5, uh, at St. John Lutheran Church in Center Point, with visitation to begin one hour prior. The Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Center Point is assisting the family. And from North Liberty, Stuart James Natalicki, age 44, died on Tuesday, December 27, of injuries sustained in a mobile home fire. A celebration of Stewart's life will be held in June of 2023. An informal gathering of friends and family will be from 2 to 5 p.m. Sunday, January 8, at the Wildwoods uh, Smokehouse. And in other death notices today, from Clarence, Julia A. Gedkin, age 60, died Friday, December 30. The Chapman Funeral Home in Clarence is assisting the family. And from Guttenberg, Roger William Anderegg, age 85, died Friday, December 30. The Toik allen Funeral Home in Guttenberg is assisting the family. Also from Guttenberg, Carrie L. Herzog, age 64, died Saturday, December 31. The Toik allen Funeral Home in Guttenberg is assisting the family. From Lansing. Deborah M. Volker, age 72, died Thursday, December 22. The Thornburg Rao Funeral Home in Lansing is assisting the family. From Marion, Sean M. Hessen, age 42, died Saturday, December 31. The Phillips Funeral Home in Binton is assisting the family. From Marion, Robert, also known as Bob C. Richmond, age 80, formerly of Cranford, New Jersey, died on Saturday, December 31. The Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion is assisting the family. From Binton. Laura Jean Wood, age 73, died Saturday, December 31. The Van Steenhoys T.N. Funeral Home in Vinton is assisting the family. From Wacan, Brian M. Guerin, age 48, died Thursday, December 29. The Martin Grau Funeral Home in Wacon is assisting the family. And from Wellman, Vivian M Troyer, aged 94, died Wednesday, December 28. The Powell Funeral Home in Wellman is assisting the family. Turning to today's sports page, we have an Iowa football story from John Stepp of the Gazette staff entitled Staying is Winning. If someone asked Tory Taylor about a month ago whether he would stay for his senior year or go pro, he was 85 to 15 or 80-20 toward leaving. Fortunately for Iowa fans, he did not need to make a decision then. Taylor told reporters Saturday after the 21-0 win over Kentucky in the Music City Bowl that he plans to return to Iowa for his senior season. Taylor, a second-team Associated Press All-American, likely would have had NFL opportunities this year. Taylor, who will turn 26 in July, acknowledged the time is probably right to leave but he instead wanted to be a part of what could be a special year for Iowa football in 2023. He also sees a couple of things that I really want to tweak with my game in 2023. The Australia native averaged 45.4 yards per punt on his 82 attempts this season. He had 38 punts inside the opponent's 20-yard line and 11 touchbacks. 27 of his punts were for at least 50 yards. Taylor had one of his best performances of the season in the Music City Bowl, launching eight punts for an average of 48.3 yards. Six of his eight punts landed inside the Kentucky 20-yard line. The other two went for 50 and 59 yards, respectively. His 48.3 yards per punt against Kentucky was the third best, in 2022, behind his 51.8 against Purdue and 50.7 against Iowa State. The average would have been higher if he did not have to punt from the Kentucky 45-yard line. Kentucky's Tavian Robinson fair caught the punt on the UK 7-yard line. He experienced probably one of my greatest ever achievements in the win over Kentucky, but not because of any of his punts. He was team captain. It means a lot because I feel like the greatest achievement you can have is by being voted in by your peers, Taylor said. A really big moment for me. After Taylor's performance Saturday, Kirk Ferentz joked that we should have made him a, a captain earlier. Taylor, his humility is nothing new to Iowa fans as he concludes his third season, predictably shared credit. He's really lucky to have Cooper Dejean as a gunner and he went out of his way to express gratitude for several others who were on the punt unit in 2022 as well. Jamison Hines, Devin Hilson, Kane Entringer, Turner Palisard, Louis Steck, and the recently departed Terry Roberts all received shout-outs. Taylor said weather can play a really big role in a punter's mindset. The game temperature Saturday was 59 degrees. I was kind of joking around with a couple of the guys, Taylor said. I'm like it's January tomorrow. Is this what it's like in this SEC every time? He may have another chance to punt in warm weather in the winter months, depending on Iowa's bowl fate in 2023. I can can really think this team can go far, and I just really want to be a part of it, Taylor said. Dear Abby today is entitled, Husband's Infidelity Humiliates His Widow, Dear Abby. My husband was the love of my wife. I lost him to COVID eight months ago. We were together for 20 years. I know my husband loved me, but he had several affairs. He was always sorry for his indiscretions and would shower me with gifts and vacations in the aftermath. I was able able to forgive him for all his affairs except the last one. It was with a tramp from our church, and it damn near ended our marriage. In fact, I told him to get out, and we were done. He begged me to change my mind and swore that this was the last time I agreed to stay, but things were never the same. We left our church because of my embarrassment about their affair, so we lost our friends. Since his passing, I have become very angry all over again. How do I let go of this anger so I can grieve the loss of my husband and remember the love and good times we shared instead of this nasty Affair, signed Missing My Man in South Carolina. And Abby responds, It's important to give yourself the opportunity to vent about your feelings. A constructive way to do that would be to talk with a licensed therapist or with your spiritual advisor. You also mentioned that in leaving, you left behind valued friendships. It may be time to renew them. And please, stop feeling embarrassed because of your husband's transgression he was a weak he was weak and he was human and the sooner you can accept that the sooner your rage may lessen turning to today's community page a story by Aaron Jordan of the gazette staff entitled indoor play from iowa city if your preschooler is bouncing off the walls after too much sugar and not enough exercise welcome to iowa winter for decades the iowa city parks and recreation department has offered Tot Time, a low-cost indoor play program at Mercer Aquatic Center and Scanlon Gym on weekday mornings from early January through April. There, preschool-age kids can wear themselves out with tricycles, inflatables, tumbling mats, play castles, slides, basketball hoop, balancing toys, and a rotating list of activities, such as Lego toys, coloring, and Play-Doh. It's one of the most popular programs we have, said Kate Connell, aquatics supervisor for the city. It's really fun, and it's always pretty busy. Tot Time is unique in that it is hosted in a public space at a fairly low cost, $1 per child, which lowers the barrier to participation. The admission cost allows Matt Idle, assistant recreation superintendent, To replace worn items and add new toys and inflatables every year, Connell said. Tot Time is a great place for kids to try out new toys their parents may want to buy for home use, she added. We try to have enough diversity so that there are different things for kids and their preference for play, she said. There's a little bit of everything. The program gives young kids a chance to develop gross motor skills, get exercise, and socialize with other children. It also provides a place for parents to meet up, sit on provided bleachers, and socialize while their children play safely. The program is from 9 30 to 11:30 a.m. Monday through Friday, January 9 through April 28, excluding January 16 and the week of March 13. On Thursdays, the Iowa City Public Library Bookmobile is parked outside Tot Time from 9.45 to 10.15 a.m. for parents and children to pick up or return books, DVDs, and other materials. Iowa City also offers Tot Play Parties in which parents can rent out the Tot Time space and toys for costs ranging from $100 and $135. For more information, call the Parks and Rec Customer Service Desks Desk at 319-356-5100. And in Things to Do Today, a museum exhibit entitled Magic and Mystery, Mardi Gras and Carnival Traditions. All over the world, carnival celebrations take place in the days leading up to Ash Wednesday and Lent. In the United States, this festival is called Mardi Gras. Czechs call it Masopust and the Slovak word is fasciangy. In the United States, Czech glass Mardi Gras beads were worn and thrown to crowds in New Orleans. In the Czech and Slovak republics, costumes may depict a bear on a chain and its master, the so-called Hribinar, hair comb maker, a devil, animals, or the chimney sweep. It goes from 9.30 to 4 p.m., at the National Czech and Slovak Museum and Library at 1400 Inspiration Place Southwest in Cedar Rapids. The cost is free to $10. And also a fundraiser benefit activity at the Cedar Rapids Toyota and Impact Life Blood Drive. Donate blood and receive a $20 gift card from a variety of vendors. It goes from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., at the Cedar Rapids Toyota at 1190 Boyson Road in Hiawatha. The cost is free. And a meta yoga activity experience the healing powers of meditative yoga from the spiritual environment and natural beauty of Prairie Woods. The instructor is Health English. It he goes from 930 a.m to 1045 a.m at the Prairie Woods Franciscan Spirituality Center. At 120 Boyson Road, in Hiawasa, Hiawatha, the cost is $99 for an 11-punch card, or $60 for a six-punch card. And winter break at the Shell, burn off all that built-up energy. The space is mostly geared for children, ages one to six, but older kids are welcome with younger siblings. It goes from 8:30 to 12:30 p.m. at the Shell at 4655 Tower Terrace Road in Cedar Rapids. The cost is from $5 to $10. Finally, a health and fitness activity entitled Going Inward with Sounds and Vibrations. Experience sound, stillness, playfulness, and relaxation through the enigmatic vibrations of Himalayan and crystal singing bowls. It goes from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m., at Prairie Woods Franciscan Spirituality Center at 120 Boyson Road in Hiawatha. The cost is $10. Also here's a list of drop-in indoor play spaces play spaces for young kids in the corridor. The first is called Tot Time. It's open weekdays from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. January 9 to April 28, excluding holidays. Cost is $1 per child for kids 6 and under and it's at the Iowa City Scanlon Gym at 2701 Bradford Drive in Iowa City. The North Liberty Community Center play area, it's free, and there's a small indoor play space open weekdays 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., weekends from 8 to 6 p.m. It's at 520 West Cherry Street in North Liberty. And the Coral Ridge Mall play area, there's a free children's play area near Barnes & Noble, It's open during mall hours at 1451 Coral Ridge Avenue in Coralville. And the Iowa Children's Museum, which is open for all ages, Tuesday to Sunday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Admission is $10 for children and adults, $9 for seniors. It's at 1451 Coral Ridge Avenue in Coralville. And Play Cafe, open to kids 6 and younger. Older siblings can come to help. It's from Wednesday through Saturday at 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Regular admission is $6 per child, and you can buy a 10-play punch card for $50. It's at 143 Marion Boulevard, Suite A in Marion. And Synergy Gymnastics. Open Gym is for kids Tuesday and Wednesday from 11.15 a.m. to 12.15 p.m. and Thursday. From 3 to 4 p.m. The cost is $8 or $9 credit per child. It's at 455 Herky Street in North Liberty and Twister's Gymnastics. A parent parent taught open gym Wednesday 11 a.m. to noon and Fridays from 2 to 3 p.m. or 3 to 4 p.m. It's $6 per child at 4625 Tower Terrace Road in northeast in Cedar Rapids. And the Shell Indoor Play Space, it's a free play for kids 6 and under at 9:30 a.m. to 12:30 p.m., Monday to Friday, and the cost is $10 per child. It's at 4625 Tower Terrace Road, Northeast in Cedar Rapids. And Air FX offers junior jumpers for kids 6 and under Thursday to Sunday from 9 to 11 a.m. The cost is $8 per child. Parents can jump for free. It's at 1100 North 18th Avenue in Hiawatha. And Sky Zone, Little Leapers, is for kids 6 and under. Sunday, from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m., it's $14.99 for one child and adult. The address is 5515 Council Street, Northeast in Cedar Rapids. And Defy Iowa City. Kid Jump is for 6 and under. 90-minute passes are sold for $15.99 for one child and a parent. From 10 to 11 on weekdays. The address is 851 Highway 6 East, Suite 102 in Iowa City. And we have a couple of Eastern Iowa briefs today. The first comes from Cedar Rapids, entitled Cedar Rapids Organizations Get Grants. The Delta Dental, Dental of Iowa Foundation awarded $496,509 to 18 organizations to strengthen and transform the oral and overall health of all Iowans. The Catherine McAuley Center and Horizons, both in Cedar Rapids, received grants. The Catherine McAuley Center received $25,000 to support its health care, navigation, education, and outreach for the Refugee and Immigrant Community Project. Horizons also received $25,000 to support Horizons NTS Medical Rides. Our foundation is committed to growing awareness of and access to oral and overall health resources and services for Iowans, said Suzanne Heckenleibel, Executive Director of the Delta Dental of Iowa Foundation. It's wonderful to see the organizations across Iowa working to advance these important health initiatives in their communities. We applaud their efforts and know that these collaborations are meaningful and will continue to grow their overall impact across Iowa. And in Hazleton, go on an owl prowl on January 16. Learn more about owls at the Owl Prowl. at 5.30 p.m. January 16 at the Fontana County Park Nature Center at 1883 125 Street in Hazleton. Join a nighttime search for barred and great horned owls. Meet inside the Nature Center for a brief introduction to owls and owl calling, including an up-close meeting with the great horned owl from the wildlife display. Participants will walk to the woods to try and call in some owls. Winter is peak breeding and early nesting time, so chances for success are high. All ages are welcome, but there will be times when silence is needed. Pre-registration is required by going to www.buchanancountyparks.com and clicking on Public Events. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Monday, January the 2nd. I'm your reader, Ken Lauder. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website at iowaradioreading.org at any time. And thanks for listening.